You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. Hi, I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, and today we're going to meet Kalen Kastetter. He is the vice president of the New York Cannabis Growers and Processors Association and founder of the Kastetter Cannabis Group a boutique firm specializing in government relations and lobbying advocacy for cannabis entrepreneurs. He helps them understand the legislation, forecast regulations, and develop a business plan around it. He's got his finger on the pulse in the New York cannabis marketplace. Let's meet Kalen. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Happy to. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And so I guess let's just start with, if you could just give us an overview of the uh, Castetter Cannabis Group when you started it, you know, a little, just some background on what you guys do. Yeah. So, yeah, so the Castetter Cannabis Group, um, you know, I've been in a lot of different operations um, throughout my career in the cannabis industry, including hemp-infused wine, right, um, which I started uh, in 2015. I was the first licensed hemp processor in the state. Um, but I've always, you know, had a passion for policy and helping entrepreneurs understand the regulatory frameworks and legislation. Um, and so uh, just recently, towards the end of uh, last year, I decided to uh, completely step away from being involved as an operator and focus on a uh, consulting practice. Uh, we're a boutique firm um, where, you know, we do government relations, so lobbying, advocacy, um, and, uh, also, you know, we help entrepreneurs understand the legislation, you know, forecasting, uh, regulations and how to develop a business plan around it. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's small and, uh, my only other full-time, uh, staff is Kate Ruby, who's my director of policy analysis. Are you working with large and small companies or people who are kind of positioning themselves, uh, try to get a foothold into the marketplace before it opens? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we don't necessarily work with very large companies at all. No, I mean, we, uh, so we specifically don't work with any of the ROs. Um, we work with small, medium-sized businesses, um, which could range from, you know, a small startup to, you know, a successful operator, say, in the, um, you know, alcoholic beverage space or the hemp space here in New York um, that, you know, could have 100 or 200 employees. Um, but, you know, our really focus is on helping entrepreneurs who are looking to add something to the marketplace, right? Whether it's their innovation, it's a focus on social equity or, um, you know, bring high quality product to the marketplace. Um, we specialize in working with legacy market operators, right? Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, our, our real focus is on New York and making sure New York marketplace um, lives up to its full potential. And so our clientele um, reflects that and we're very uh, selective about our, our clients too. So, so I, I noticed um, uh, living in the city that uh, legacy entrepreneurs are, are starting to bubble up. Like you can see them kind of coming out in the open and operating freely. How is that working as legally they're operating obviously without licenses are they hoping to get a license and how do you think that's going to work with the government are they just going to you know turn the other way well i think that's a great question and you know i think the legacy market and you know who is quote unquote legacy and who's not is 
uh, complicated and nuanced. And I think, you know, if you asked, you know, uh, a room of 10 uh, people in the cannabis space, you know, what legacy means, I think you're going to get 10 different answers, right? Um, but I think it's important to separate out, you know, I think the core, the core characteristic of being legacy is that you spent time as an entrepreneur um, with everything at risk and everything on the line. And, and when I say everything, I mean, you know, your freedom, you know, your uh, family, uh, you know, being together with your family. Um, you know, th that's so important to, to note is that, you know, these entrepreneurs, uh, if they were caught, uh, could have, you know, lost their freedom and, you know, lost their family. Um, if that's not the case, I struggle to, you know, call something legacy. At that point, I think you're just on license, right? If you, you know, set up a shop on West 4th Street, um, and, you know, you're selling uh, cannabis there um, because you saw an opportunity to do so because, uh, you, you know, you, you don't think the state's going to shut you down. Well, you're just an opportunity, you know, and, and um, I don't think the state will look too kindly on those operations. And uh, no, once we have a licensed regulated marketplace, the state cannot allow unregulated uh, cannabis operators um, to to exist, especially on the on the retail side. You can't have you know, uh, you know, these unlicensed stores that you see in California, you know, uh, on every other block in New York, that will not work, right? Um, in the meantime, I think the state needs to uh, provide a viable path to licensure for legacy operators, including cultivators and, you know, people who have delivery serves and uh, people who, um, you know, maybe operating uh, members clubs right now. Um, there needs to be a viable path for them, and that includes, you know, uh, tax and criminal amnesty, uh, at least on the state level, and you know, a, a guaranteed path. You know, if they're going to disclose this information, they they should have a path to licensure. Um, so I think it's a very complicated issue, and I think you know, like I said, it boils down to you know whether someone uh, you know really really deserves and and is able to call themselves a legacy in the sense that they you know did operate under a framework that was you know very um dangerous for them or they're just you know um as president biden would say johnny come lately <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh, i you know i agree with you legacy means that you you're you're not the opportunist out there um it's the people who really you know were legacy entrepreneurs but i don't know how they prove that i, I never even thought about the opportunist i just I guess I was just thinking legacy people are out there trying to, you know, break into the business, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a complicated path. And I, I also know some legacy entrepreneurs out there that are setting up those uh, membership clubs and things like that. And I'm just wondering how that's going to work for them, you know? Well, you know, the, well, so if you want to operate a membership club, I mean, this is actually a provision in, in murder that is often overlooked. Uh, you can operate a membership only club, but you have to be a nonprofit. So, um, you know, there's something there. That's not what these entrepreneurs are doing. They're, you know, basically operating a dispensary um, or a lounge, right? Um, but those entrepreneurs, um, you know, you're right. I mean, how are they going to prove it, et cetera? I mean, the state spent 40, 50 years being very effective at finding these operations and investigating them and you know arresting and destroying families 
I think they can put their heads together to investigate on the other way and give them licenses, right? And so, you know, I think this idea of, well, you know, we can't prove that someone's, you know, legacy or not. Um, I think that is the beginning of potentially a cop out, you know, on from a regulator perspective. No, it's their job to figure that out. And they should figure that out. They should devote as many resources as necessary to do so. Um, because if this is really about restorative justice, um, and we're really talking about, you know, establishing a serious marketplace, not a marketplace that looks like California does right now, um, then, you know, New York's legacy marketplace uh, needs to to move into the uh, the regulated market. So um, as far as the hemp farmers, um, I know there's, I think, about 12 hemp farms and extractors operating currently in New York State, you know, patiently waiting to flip over to marijuana. Um, do, what do you what do you see with the farmers and, you know, how that's happening? Are, they, are a lot of them working with brands who are looking to come in to the uh, New York marketplace or what do you, what do you see about the you know the, the hemp farmers merging with the legal market coming in because I'm sure they want to switch over am I right there that well I yeah I guess again I think that's a, com a complex and kind of nuanced question and it really depends on who you ask right to start with the processors though there's a little over a dozen compliant and licensed cannabinoid hemp processors in the state they have very sophisticated infrastructure, and I think it just makes sense to use that infrastructure for THC and license those operators. I think most of them will want to. Um, but on the hemp side, there's 700 some licensed hemp farmers, right? And that, you know, the the range of who is a hemp farmer. I've worked with, you know, dozens and dozens of hemp farmers. You know, my work with the NYCGPA, we have, you know, hundreds of a couple hundred members. Um, it ranges. I mean, there is. I would say the vast. The reality is the vast majority of hemp farmers do not have the infrastructure, knowledge, or expertise to begin cultivating cannabis, uh, adult-use cannabis, and be successful off the bat, right? That doesn't mean that, you know, they shouldn't have an opportunity to learn and, and to develop and, you know, invest. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that you're looking at a small subsection of the total licensed hemp growers who are, you know, ready, willing, and able um, in the sense that they have infrastructure, you know, because you can grow outside, you still need to be able to dry and cure in a controlled environment, you need to be able to hold genetics, you need to, you know, and, and, and the reality is, is that most of cannabis being sold in New York right now is grown either indoor or in uh, light deprivation greenhouses. And so a controlled environment uh, cultivation is probably going to be the norm. Uh, that requires a tremendous amount of investment and expertise, um, and uh, it will require a certain amount of failure in order for people to get their systems correct um, and honed in. So, yes, I do believe that there's a place for hemp farmers. Now, is should all the hemp farmers just you know get a license and and the state should just tell them to to go at it? No, I think we're going to have a similar situation that we had with with cannabinoid hemp, where highly commoditized marketplace and and people spending a lot of money that they don't necessarily have. So um, that's, like I said, another complicated issue. But yeah, those that are ready, willing, and able, I do think should be afforded the opportunity to, um, to get into this marketplace. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, these CB, you know, processors or brands have developed really nice, you know, artisan, you know, craft-focused brands with loyal followings. And um, I think that consumer base transfers over uh, well in a lot of cases. So, um, you know, because you are a consulting firm and I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs are coming to you, what kind of 
entrepreneurs or people are you seeing looking to come into the New York marketplace from the outside and the inside? Just like who are who's out there? Who who's what kind and well, I, th I think fortunately, um, I've been able to develop a reputation of, you know, being for the small player and the small business and, you know, helping, um, you know, uh, like I said, you know, social equity applicants, uh, people of color, legacy operators. Uh, so those are the type of entrepreneurs that come to me. And these entrepreneurs have, you know, existing businesses, they could have an existing uh, bar or restaurant or their legacy operator or they're in, you know, alcohol or, uh, they've been successful in in a different you know retail setting, right? And these are New Yorkers. They are hungry for an opportunity. They have amazing and innovative ideas. And I think that you know, um, and it runs the gamut. From you know, I have clients in Niagara Falls, and I have clients in Harlem, right? I mean, you know, and and the beautiful thing about it, and it's something that we do as a firm, is we actually bring our clients together. We had a summit in December where everyone came together, and you know, the synergies were flowing, right? And I think this is the unique and amazing thing about industry that is insular because of the you know prohibition at the federal level is that we're going to develop uh, supply chains and relationships from upstate and downstate and communities that have not been connected for a long time. And I think that's going to be mm -hmm. huge culturally and, and everything. Um, now, I now, this is not, not speak for myself and the people that come to me, but the other side of that coin is uh, there is, you know, a lot of private equity backed entrepreneurs, you know, people, you know, with, with, with VC backing, uh, MSOs, you know, the 10 ROs, you know, they are all looking at this opportunity purely from a dollars and cents perspective, right? You know, my clients, when they come to me and I talk to them, money is important, profitability is important, but it's never the number one thing. If there is a huge uh, class of, of what will be applicants, potential applicants, who money is driving everything. Uh, a lot of them aren't from in-state, and a lot of the money that they will make will go will leave the state, and the wealth won't be created in those communities. So I think they should probably move to the back of the line, and, and, and the way that, that New York can do that uh, is, is yet to be seen. But And, and why, do, why would the money leave the state? Because you mean once we open up the borders or? No, I mean, you know, you're a company that comes in and, you know, you are an MSL, you're based out of California, oh. you're based. Yeah. What I mean is that, you know, you, they, they'll be paying yeah. wages in the state, but the wealth is not being generated in our communities. You know, um, right. it, it's leaving and it's going to Miami, it's going to Toronto, it's going to LA right. or Denver, you know. Wherever their home base is, I guess, whatever their tax home is or something. Correct. Um, I mean, I know you're telling me now that you're involved with a lot of social equity entrepreneurs, but the state social equity programs, how do you see uh, them being a, a really good resource for uh, uplifting, supporting these uh, legacy entrepreneurs? Because, you know, there's so many different programs out there. I've looked at a, a, a bunch of different programs and I see some pretty good programs actually. But the state-run programs, I'm not so sure about because they're just kind of like those typical accelerator or incubator programs where they, you know, they teach you. It, but being in school and being hands-on in the real world is a whole different story. That I'm not very confident in a lot of these social equity programs. So I'm just wondering how New York is shaping up. Um, yeah. To support. Well, I mean that that's a great question. I think you are correct in that you know a lot of these state-run program. It's never, no state has been able to roll social equity out 
um, in a way that you know truly meets their intended goals or stated goals. Um, New York, we'll see. I mean, wow, we got an announcement from the governor that we are going to have a $200 million fund for social equity applicants. That is huge. That has never been done before. That is one of the most significant barriers to entry. Um, and uh, I think that's important. Now, there is other barriers to entry. There's actually two more significant barriers to entry that will keep uh, uh, you know, equ uh, social equity entrepreneurs um, from entering the space and from being successful. One is capital, and it looks like the state is being very innovative and is going to move to help you know, reduce that barrier. The second one is expertise, right? You know, this transfer of knowledge and expertise is going to be very, very important. Um, and the state, you know, uh, allowing for incubator programs and funding incubator programs, I think, is yet to be seen how successful they're going to be. I mean, this is a long-term play. And this isn't going to happen, you know, overnight. It's not going to happen, you know, ahead of licensure, even their applications. I think this is going to be multi-years where they're going to have to set up these support systems for entrepreneurs, right? So that's, that's the second part. The third part, and, and this is very important, I think this gets overlooked a lot, especially by regulators, and this can, you know, this has to be paramount, is compliance, right? If you create a marketplace that requires you to essentially, you know, operate at a pharmaceutical level uh, for a product that, you know, is, you know, is, is in for all intents and purposes, not a public safety risk, right? Um, then you're going to stifle the market and you're going to create failure um, through, you know, being non-compliant amongst a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, most businesses are not set up to have someone who's in-house compliance expert, right? Um, or an attorney, at, you know, in-house general counsel. I mean, we're talking about small businesses. Um, so, you know, in terms of, you know, the state should not go too far in taxation. You know, right now we're looking at effective tax rates, which will not make the marketplace competitive. And so the state needs to change the taxes, right? There's, that, that, that needs, to, you know, we've learned that from California. Um, the state. Every state. Oh, yeah. it's a mess. It, it's a mess, exactly. And it, and it makes, no, it, it, it's greedy on the part of the state, in my opinion. Um, and it's short-sighted, right? We do know that the lower the tax rate, the more gross receipts you have. And so therefore, you know, the higher revenue come in. This should not be a money-making industry or money-making industry for the state. The state should not look at specifically the directly attributable sales tax revenue as a way to increase revenues to the state. They should be looking at economic development. They should be looking at the people who are moving here and paying property taxes. They should be looking at the payroll taxes. And that should be their ROI, right? Not on sales tax revenue. It's, it's so ignorant. It's so short-sighted. I, I, I just don't even understand that they don't understand this. It baffles me, honestly. But yeah. people are fighting, so hopefully somebody will listen. And uh, actually, going back to you were saying that you lobby for some of these companies or how important is hiring someone like you to lobby for them, I guess, in the application process? Um, do you see how do you see this as being important? Yeah, well, so the, so the interesting thing about, you know, lobbyists, and I think I, I take a different approach to, to lobbying government relations than than other firms and, and lobbyists do. Um, but, you know, I have, you know, a lot of connections to, you know, regulators and lawmakers, et cetera. None of that is going to help during an application process, right? No matter what a lobbyist says, you know, um, I don't, I truly do not believe 
that the regulators will be influenced during an application process based on who a company pays as a lobbyist. Uh, you know, we're past the Cuomo administration. You know, uh, Hochul is very, um, you know, intentional about ethics reform. So I don't, I don't believe that that really helps, right? And that's not what I offer at all. Um, what I do is I help these businesses develop their voice, understand how the regulations will affect their future business planning, and advocate and develop advocacy plans and develop their voice so they can best inform the regulators through the regulatory process. That also includes drafting of public comments, right? So they can weigh in and say, hey, you know, this is how that piece of regulation would affect us and this is our ideas, right? And I think that is very important because we're developing a new industry. The regulators want to learn, they want to hear, they want to listen and developing that in an effective way, I think is really important. And that's what we do as a firm, right? The other part with the application is we help with application strategy, right? You know, and government relations on the municipal level, which is going to be very important, you know, having municipal support and, you know, having a very solid social equity plan and community reinvestment plan and being a good player in the community and developing your connections in the supply chain ahead of time and communicating how you're going to be a good player in the market. So, you know, that's what we do. I think more maybe uh, we're not, that's not typical of a traditional, you know, lobby firm, but um, you know, that's not what I've ever done is, is be typical. And, you know, I try to, you know, find out of the box uh, ways of thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's what we do um, as a lobbyist. And I'm very proud to say that, that, you know, we, we help these entrepreneurs do so. And you have, you know, your your work with the um, New York uh, hemp uh, hemp farmers. Yeah, the, the NYCGPA, which is actually has become an association of 250 members that goes way beyond just hemp growers. It started as a as a as an association to help hemp processors and growers, but now you know we're a Big Ten organization, we're the largest trade association in the state by far for the cannabis industry. Right. So, I mean, you have all that knowledge and you grew up on a hemp farm, you grew up upstate, uh, well, you know, you have a, you have a lot of, a lot of knowledge. I actually did not, sure I did know. not grow up on a hemp farm. I grew up on the west side of Binghamton, actually. <laughs> um, I had, you, wait, you, you grew up, I, I, you grew up, I grew up in the city of Binghamton. So, you know, it's a small city. I had a little garden in the back, um, but I did grow up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I did, I did grow up on a hemp farm per se, but I guess you could say, uh, at certain times okay. of the year, uh, there was some cannabis being cultivated. My dad's a grower. Uh, he's, he's a legacy grower. Um, and so, you know. Uh, uh, that's why uh, I think uh, I thought you grew up on a farm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and, that, and that's a misconception. <laughs> you know, people have asked me before, oh, so you grew up on a farm. And, um, you know, I go, well, no, actually, big like, is. No, my dad. Just... <laughs> exactly. There's about 100,000 people there. No, my dad just grew weed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just grew pot. And that definitely wasn't on a farm. And it was definitely. Uh, hidden. So, um, you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. I'm glad you cleared that even more. I mean, now I can see why you really want to help the legacy um, entrepreneurs. Um, the last question would be is what do you think of national legalization opening the borders? Yeah. Well, so I think I'm a little less um, concerned about interstate commerce, right? I think it's inevitable. Um, what I'm concerned about is us turning the the keys to the castle in terms of regulations over to a federal government which has spent must, massive amounts of resources and energy to lock us up for the past 50 years you know i guess my response to federal legalization is they should re, you know remove it from the schedule remove it from being a controlled substance and then get out of the way and allow the states to regulate 
because the federal government, the CAOA is going to be a disaster. You know, uh, Schumer's bill is a terrible piece of legislation in almost all parts of it. And we're talking about up to 25% federal tax on the excise level, potentially calculating oh. um, for THC levels. You know, the TTB involved, if you've ever dealt with the TTB from that place, the last people who want to be involved. And we're talking about the FDA <laughs> regulating standards and manufacturing for cannabinoid products. The same FDA, which refuses to do so now for non-psychoactive cannabinoids <sighs> such as CBD. It's just, it's a, it's a terrible idea. So, you know, if, 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 if they really want to do something right, they would remove it from the schedule let the states regulate and let the innovation and see which state regulatory programs are actually working. And then maybe, you know, down the line, the federal government can come in and start to provide some sort of standards. But, you know, I, the CAOA, federal legalization, as it's proposed right now, would be a disaster. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I agree. I guess I'm just worried, worried that, um, you know, the growers, you know, because California seems to be like the perfect environment for growing and you know, what's going to, and in the South, like North Carolina, and, you know, what's going to happen to us in New York, the farmers in New York State, yeah. or, you know, well, it's, yeah. Michigan, and things like well, that. Well, that's a huge threat. And I think, you know, in the meantime, when there's, you know, there is closed borders, because it's not going to be forever, um, you know, New York growers need to be able to begin, you know, growing and developing a loyal customer base, um, you know, and, uh, and at the end of the day, shipping costs money, right? So if we could, grow comparable quality you know at least on the like mid is like high-end mid range to like high-end range i think that's really where new york cultivators will excel you know we're never going to compete on a commodity basis with oregon and california and nevada and arizona i mean they're, they're going to be able to grow higher amounts of low quality cannabis but there's no difference um from a high quality perspective whether you're growing in new york or california if you're growing in a controlled environment it's really just the, the person growing so oh, okay so you think like the craft market is that more the craft market correct that will be developed yeah, yeah okay. that so. will develop in new york okay great cool thanks Haley. yeah absolutely thank you yeah just let me know and uh yeah, i'm looking forward to hearing the episode it's great Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.